Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. You know, if we were gathered today for a Roman Catholic Mass, the priest might share a homily on the life of St. Veronica Juliana. Today is her feast day, among others. Now, there are about 10,000 saints in the pantheon of Catholicism, so there's always a few to choose from, whichever day of the year that you pick. But Veronica seems to draw a great deal of attention. She was born in a small Italian village during Advent, 1660. She suffered great loss as a child, particularly the passing of her mother, She had a passionate burden to care for the poor from a very early age, and she began to have what we would call mystical experiences while she was a teenager. Now, what is a mystical experience? Well, I'm going to rely on William James here, and he said that a mystical experience, and he wrote a classic book more than 125 years ago called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And he said there are four major components to a mystical experience. Number one, it is an experience that cannot be properly described. It must be experienced in order to be comprehended. Two, it is an experience of glimpsing into the divine. It is a revelation, a new understanding. Three, it is a short-term experience, a state that doesn't last. And fourth, I'll use the language of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she was told by mystical experience that she would bear the Christ, she said, may it be done unto me as you say. And William James, giving the fourth characteristic, says that the subject of the experience is not in control of the experience. So when one has this into the mystic experience, it is an encounter with the other. An encounter with the divine, with the holy, with God. William James' favorite phrase for God was the wondrous more. We enter into this wonderful more that we can be able to describe. And this is not something that happens all the time. Now, I know people say things like, I was reading my Bible this morning and the Lord said to me, well, that's not really a mystical experience, but we, we kind of go that way. But that's where Veronica, St. Veronica's experience sort of crossed over from the indescribable to the practical. And she seemed to have these visions and dreams and encounters with the crucified but, but risen Christ her entire life. And then finally, per her biographies, Veronica experienced what the Catholic Church calls the stigmata, which is the manifestation of the crucifixion wounds of Jesus. In the palms of her hand, on the tops of her feet, her side, and ultimately like a crown of thorns. A wound, a bleeding wound, a bruise. 
Now, here's the thing. When somebody has had some kind of experience with God, you really, you really can't argue with them because they can't prove it and you can't disprove it, right? And sometimes people use this mystical experience as an excuse. Well, the Lord told me, and then they just go off doing whatever the Lord told them. Now, a holy person, a true saint, can say that she met Jesus on her walk this morning and that he imparted to her some deep sense of love and peace. And you might think that that person is unstable or deceived or that she was hallucinating, but you can't disprove it no more than she can prove it. And likewise, a malicious person can say that Jesus came to them in a dream and instructed him to murder every person born on the seventh day of the seventh month. I hope that's not your birthday. I just picked that one randomly. And you might think that that person is unstable or deceived or hallucinating, but you can't disprove it no more than he could prove it. The challenge with such claims is whether or not they're ethical, whether or not they harm people. The first one would be rather benign, and the second one would be a calamity. Jim Jones in the People's Temple is an example of a mystical experience turned into murderous disaster. David Koresh of the Branch Davidians was the same, as was Heaven's Gate mass suicide led by Marshall Applewhite. And for that matter, the launching of the First Crusade during the Middle Ages was largely due to a visionary preacher who had an apocalyptic vision and it plunged two continents into war. No one could tell these leaders or their followers that they had not had a mystical experience. What became arguable was when that mystical crossed over into the observable and these communities became places of abuse and exploitation and manipulation and misuse of authority. And let me say there are plenty of places like that thriving today. To the other side, the Society of Friends known as the Quakers founded largely upon a mystical experience by George Fox. Many of the reformers, including Luther, testified to having profound, inexplicable revelations. Bill Wilson of AA, George MacDonald, A.W. Tozer, Florence Nightingale, Mother Teresa, they all had divine encounters that led them to do healing and hopeful work in the world. Now, there's a whole discussion to be had on evaluating religious and mystical experiences, how they help, how they harm. But back to Veronica today and this stigmata. From our scripture reading, the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Galatians, I direct you to verse 17 again. From now on, Paul says, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. I bear in my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. It's the word scars in this English translation that in the Greek is the word stigma, or in Latin, or the plural form, stigmata. And it is its only use in the entire body of Scripture, Old Testament or New. At its root, stigma means stick, like a pointy stick. And in Paul's day, stigma was what we might call a notch. Now, before the gunslingers and six-shooters of the Old West did it, Roman soldiers did this. They would take a sharp stick, and they would put a stigma 
in the heel or the hilt of their sword when they killed an enemy or maybe survived an attack. A notch, just like six shooters in the Old West, you know, bounty hunter captures somebody, takes them in dead or alive, puts a notch in his gun. It was also the word used for notch in a belt. If you took a sharp stick and you put a hole through the leather in order for it to hold, that was stigma. And then you go on from there and it can even mean to brand an animal. It could even mean in a primitive form, a tattoo, a puncture of some case. In each and every case, some sharp pointed object is used to scar a material in some way. There was nothing essentially spiritual about what Paul is saying here. And certainly nothing spiritual about the word stigma. It's a pointy stick that you do damage with. Now, by the time we get to Shakespeare, stigma is brought into the English language. Oh, Shakespeare. Lady Macbeth is goading her husband to murder the Scottish king and to take the crown for himself, a treasonous but irresistible act that now he is having a little bit of second thought about. And Lady Macbeth says to Macbeth, screw your courage to the sticking place. Great quote, and we will not fail. When he says sticking place, the old English word is stigma, and it's brought into the English language. But the one who really did something with stigma is this guy right here in this book, Nathaniel Hawthorne, writing the book, The Scarlet Letter. Now, it's a scandalous book, and there's some people young enough today who Maybe it's been assigned in your high school or college or even middle school. I don't know. It's probably a little too much. I don't know. What books are usable today and not? I don't know anymore. But in this book, set in Puritan New England in the 1600s, lo and behold, a lady is great with child. And that's a problem because her husband supposedly has been lost at sea for years. And in that Puritan culture, to become pregnant out of wedlock was punishable by jailing or killing them, hanging them. And so they bring this poor lady before the entire town, put her on a scaffold, threaten to kill her, forcing her to disclose who the father is, and she won't tell him. So what happens? She is scorned. She is shamed. She is shunned. She is pushed away to the edge of town where she lives in this little hovel and she gives birth to her baby. And the community makes her wear a scarlet letter A on her clothes for the remainder of her life. A for adultery. It would have ended there maybe, but her husband actually shows up from being lost at sea. And he wants to know who the other partner is. Well, I'm going to spoil the story for you, but it was the preacher. Not this preacher. (laughs) And at the very end, he dies literally of his guilt, having had this child and hidden it. And he dies on the scaffold in her arms. And on his chest is emblazoned the stigmata A, for he too was an adulterer. The bruise, the wound of the A. And so ever since Hawthorne, when we talk about someone having a stigma, or we stigmatize someone, what do we do? We remove them. 
Maybe it's, maybe it's their moral failures. Maybe it's the color of their skin. Maybe it's their family name. Maybe it's something they did or didn't do, but we brand them. We mark them and we push them away. Now back to St. Veronica. If you watch movies, maybe like the movie Stigmata that came out about 30 years ago and is an absolute travesty of acting and theology, (laughs) or if you read the Da Vinci Code books, which I enjoyed very much, you get this skewed understanding that maybe the Catholic view of stigmata is such that people are just running around all the time bleeding out of their orifices and their hands and their feet while talking in a strange demonic voice and simultaneously being joined with Jesus. That's not how any of that has worked. Over the years, only 250 cases of stigmata in the world. And they were all during the Middle Ages. And 90% of them were found to be fraudulent. But there was a few that the church couldn't do anything with. And so now the church, the Roman church, has a 12-step program that if you come to them and say, hey, I've got the stigmata, they're going to put you through your paces. Because there has been so much hoax. But they still leave out in our, in our vernacular today, they will neither deny nor confirm that stigmata is an actual thing. Because they leave room for, well, who are we to say if it cannot be explained? Now, all of this, I'm coming to tie it all together right here. All of these uses depart from Paul's use and meaning of the word. Catholic stigmata, which I have no real quarrel with, and I'll leave it to the mystical side, whether it can be proven or disproven. Shakespeare with Macbeth, as much as I like Macbeth's moxie. Hawthorne, who gave us a brand new concept, they all use the same word, but with different meanings. This is so important when you come to the scriptures, and we're going to play a game right now. The word is fine. Our English word. Now watch this. What does fine mean? Number one, this material, material and thread are very fine. That means it is of high quality, Right? Right? Number two. Thank you. Number two. The counter is dusty because the flour is so fine. Meaning, it's thin. Right? Number three. Dinner at six will be fine. Which means I approve. Or if it said passively, aggressively, I disapprove and you do not take me into account. Fine. Four, for illegally parking on the back path, you will have to pay this this fine. It's a monetary penalty. And it goes on and on with this one word. And there are hundreds of words in the English language that work this way. It's no wonder that if you're not born speaking the English language, that it's so impossible to learn. We got this one word. It means a hundred different things. Let's bring this to the text now. When we come to the Bible, language is so important. We cannot begin by asking this question, what does this text mean to me? Now, that's the application question. That's the question asked at Bible study time. I know that. But we can't ask that question first. Here is why. We are 21st century, English-speaking, empire-enjoying, materialistically blessed, Technologically shaped, 
democracy-accustomed beneficiaries of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the scientific and industrial revolutions. Our world is a global one of mass communication, exceptional literacy rates, and fierce individualism. And we are reading the Bible in our one moment. The biblical writers are none of those things. They are Iron and Roman Age people. Speaking Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, defying and resisting the empire. They are mostly poor with primitive tools and technology, usually at the mercy of some dictator or strongman. Without scientific or industrial advancement, no form of mass communication or even printing. Their world was tiny in comparison to ours. They worked largely with an illiterate audience and were fiercely communal and tribal because no one could survive their world alone. And they are writing what would become the Bible over centuries on different continents within different cultures from different historical perspectives. And if you do not take that into account first, you'll be wandering off into the weeds with the first question of what does this mean to me? You have to ask first, what did the writer intend to say? What did this mean to the first people, the first audience that read it? We have to begin there. And it's here for today, at least, that we can jump over Hawthorne and wave away Shakespeare and leave the whole stigmata phenomenon in a category all by itself and try to get at what Paul meant with this single verse that has not always been interpreted responsibly. To be a stigmatic A stigmatic in the medieval Catholic age was to be a mystic. To be stigmatized today would be an act of shame. But as Paul understood it, the stigma was a mark of his legitimacy. When Paul writes Galatians, he is fairly early in his missionary career. He's been a missionary for 18 months. But he is no newcomer to trouble He became a Christian some 14 years before his first missionary journey. And we all get this idea that Paul's going along on the Damascus Road, and he has, by any definition, a mystical experience. The people with him thought they heard thunder. Paul heard the voice of God. And he has this mystical experience, and you would think, well, that means he just went right to work being a missionary. No! When the guy who has been trying to kill you and your family for about a decade suddenly says he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, you don't just invite him right over to the church potluck dinner. (laughs) You give a little time to see if this thing's going to take. Right? 14 years. 14 years before he's brought into the fold to say, all right, we believe you. And finally, he's on his way. And on his first missionary journey, he goes to a region called Galatia. It's in central modern-day Turkey. And then there's a little series of villages there, about 20 miles apart. And he starts creating and setting up these little Christian communities in these villages. And he gets to a village named Iconium. And they beat him with their hands and their feet. He's savagely attacked by a mob. They stone him, breaking open his head, bruises, contusions all over his body. The small bones of his hands are broken. They drag him outside the city limit where the garbage would be taken, and they throw him on the trash pile to die. 
And they gather around him for the funeral, but somehow, either by divine intervention or pure determination, he lives. He gets up. He goes back to work. He eventually gets home safely. But while he is gone, in his absence, the same people who tried to kill him go back to those little churches he started and start discrediting him. We should have killed him when we had the chance. That old murderer, the heretic, that imposter, he deserved to get what he had dished out. And they throw Paul's new Christian communities into chaos. And Paul writes the book of Galatians as a defense and to set the record straight. And here he concludes with that bold assertion, I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. It's not mystical. It isn't spiritual. As he concludes the letter with these words, he's signing the letter himself. And I wonder if when he picks up the quill, he has to make a fist and stretch his hand because all those bones haven't healed yet. I wonder when he signed this letter if he could still reach up and feel all the knots on his head from the rocks bouncing off of him. I wonder if he looked down and could still see the deep purple scars and wounds from being drug outside the city gates and dumped to die. I think Paul would tell us, I wish that had been a mystical experience. I wish that had been a spiritual experience, but it was very real. Paul is not unlike an old World War II veteran that I knew in the very first church that I pastored. His name was Grethel. Grethel Thomas. And Grethel, after coming home, wore overalls and a long sleeve shirt every day. That was his uniform, if you ever saw him. We enjoyed one another's company, and I would go visit him. And one day I went out to the farm, and uh, he had his overalls on, but no shirt. That's a classic redneck look right there, you know. (laughs) And when I arrived, he quickly got a shirt on, not because he was ashamed. I'd heard, but I'd never seen it. All down the left side of his body, he was carrying about two pounds of German shrapnel from 1943. He wasn't ashamed of that. But there's something about the modesty of that generation. He wasn't going to make a big deal out of it either. And he could say, without saying a word, that he bore on his body evidence of what he had been through. Could he not? I love this right here. This is Eric DeMott. When he was 30 years old, he went to his grandfather, Yosef, to ask permission. Yosef was an Auschwitz survivor. And many of those survivors came home with an identification number tattooed into their left arm. It was the Nazis' way of keeping track of all the prisoners because they had so many. 1.1 million people died at Auschwitz alone. Eric wanted to have his grandfather's number tattooed into his left arm. His His grandfather was horrified. Why would you ever do something like that, he asked. And then the old man stopped himself and he said this. When you have children, will you show this to them and tell them about me and what our people have survived? Hmm. We aren't persecuted. We have not, to quote the book of Hebrews, resisted to the point of blood. Our pluralistic world may make us uncomfortable. It might offend us, 
But few of us, if any, carry physical scars because of Jesus. We just have not suffered because of faith. But we know what it's like to suffer. To be treated unfairly. To have to go on in spite of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. To oppose the sea of troubles. And in the midst of this, to carry the mark of the Christ, to carry his stigma, is not to be ashamed on the one hand or to be over-spiritual on the other. It is simply the hard knocks received while living a faithful life. These are the scars, the bumps, the bruises, and sometimes the breaks received while doing what is right and surviving the wrong that is done unto you. And you should never be ashamed of those scars. Those scars prove that you have survived. And may we bear those within our body and our spirit in the way that Christ would have us.